Welcome to Sightseeing Japan, the podcast where we explore the land of pickling. I'm Paul Bresson. And I'm Jason Ealing. How you doing, Paul? I'm doing great. Good. Been on the Discord much lately? Uh, a bit, yeah. That's been awesome. We got a bunch of people flowing in, a lot of good conversations happening. Yeah, I love the travel forums. We got a bunch of posts in there about different people's trip itineraries and ideas. I think that's really cool. Yeah, even though we just got back from Japan, every time I go in there and see somebody's itinerary, I get jealous of all the cool places that they're seeing that I haven't been to. 100% with you there. (laughs) So yeah, if you want to join the Discord, I'm putting that link in the show notes for every episode, so check that out. Uh, There's also a link there to the Patreon, which has been getting a little less attention than the Discord, understandably. You know, the Discord is free. The Patreon's not quite free, although almost free, (laughs) right? $2 almost free. That's close. That's like pennies per day. That's so little, I wouldn't even mark it in my budget. Exactly. I mean, you probably would, but... Well, I'm a, you know... You're you're a budget, you're a spreadsheet guy. Yeah, I got my spreadsheets, (laughs) got my, my budget app and all that. Anyway, so yeah, we were thinking, you know, maybe we need more content on the Patreon. Maybe we need more incentives. Maybe we need some goals. Goals are good. Yeah, I think goals would be good. All right. At 25 patrons, we should do something, right? Okay, 25. That's not very many. That's attainable, I think. I can count that high. Yeah. At 25, let's say folklore. We'll start doing folklore Patreon-exclusive episodes. That sounds awesome. I like those folklore episodes. Those are fun. Speaking of which... I totally pulled one of those stories out of my bag today, or not today, this last weekend I was up at a cabin with my brother and a friend, yeah. and we were sitting around the campfire at night. That's so I'm the like, perfect place for those stories. Let me tell you guys a spooky story. And I told that story about the snow maiden yeah. who married the guy, but then he brought up the fact that he knew she was a demon or whatever, and she freaked out and disappeared and... They were like, dude, good story. Whoa, where'd you where'd you get that? Ancient Japan. That's yeah. right. That. Yeah, so that, that came in handy. Awesome. Even the dog was like, I don't know if it was because I was using my story voice, but the dog was like growling while I was telling the story. Wow. You got those storytelling skills. <laughs> Bringing it to life. So the folklore episodes are fantastic, but when you're setting goals, you got to go big, right? Sure. Let's let's make a big stretch goal. Okay. 50 patrons. 50 patrons. Yeah. What's what's the We're going to create the greatest episode of all time, Jason. Let me guess. An interview of Jason Kneeling episode. How did I not think of that? <laughs> That's what everybody wants to hear, right? They want to hear more of me talking of about myself. Jason Kneeling. <laughs> No, I was thinking more along the lines of hentai. Of course you were. I mean, because we already did baseball and we already did anime. Yeah, and hentai is your, your third great love in life, right? <laughs> you know me best, Jason. Or is that the ranking or is hentai number one and we just didn't do that because, you know. No comment. obvious reasons. Yeah. This will be a topic that Paul knows intimately, and I know basically nothing about. (laughs) (laughs) Jason doesn't even know what I'm talking about. I've never even heard that word before. I don't even need to take notes for this episode. Yeah, (laughs) I'm sure. Okay, well, yeah, I'm willing to do that. 
at 50 patrons. That sounds like a good goal. Cool, cool. All right. So yeah, if you want to hear folklore, if you want to hear about hentai, Patreon link is in the show notes. It's also on our website, sightseeingjapanpodcast.com. Okay, well, shall we get into the topic today, Paul? Yes, let's do it. Okay, I got a, I got a good lead in here. Okay. So, Paul, you like anime, as we just mentioned recently. Yes. And bento boxes often show up in anime, especially like school life themed anime, right? Yeah. And in bento boxes, usually a decent sized section of that box uh, is made up of rice. Correct. And a lot of times in the middle of that rice, you see a little red ball, right? Yeah, absolutely. You got to have the red ball. Yeah. How many years were you watching anime before you realized what that ball was? Uh, Probably a few. Yeah. I don't remember when I figured it out, but as soon as I heard about it, I wanted to eat that red ball and see what it tasted like, because it's a very (laughs) Japanese thing, a uniquely Japanese food. It sure is. Yeah. So what are we talking about, Jace? So that little red ball is something called umeboshi, which is usually translated as a pickled plum. And we're going to dive into this fruit, this plum. Uh, And there's a lot of interesting stuff about it, I think, because one, it's not really a plum. And two, those umeboshi aren't really just pickled plums. And I don't know, there's just a lot of interesting little details that I was not really aware of until now. Yeah, this is an episode I learned a lot researching. Good. I know at the end of the last episode, you were kind of bashing my idea for this topic. How do you feel about it now? Um, I was wrong. Thank you. I just love hearing those words coming out of your mouth. <laughs> you were right. Love that even more. <laughs> <laughs> what really gets me, and we'll get into this a lot later, is the cultural significance of ume. Yeah. It is really important in Japanese culture. Yeah. So you you were right again. Thank you, Paul. Thank you. So, yeah, I have a little bit more about umeboshi. You'll see those all over the place in Japan. Like I said, they appear in bento boxes a lot of the time. You'll see them in any convenience store you walk into, you can buy those. But there's so many other ways that these ume plum things are enjoyed in Japan. We're going to go through a bunch of them. You can eat them. You can drink them. You can look at them. They're pretty to look at especially the flowers that happen before the fruit, right? Yep. Yeah, they're just, they're important in Japan and Japanese culture and have been for a very long time. So let's talk about the trees a little bit. They're fruit, they grow on trees. Yes, the tree species is called Prunus mume. And I thought that was kind of interesting right there because usually those scientific names for plants are Latin, right? But that one's not, not entirely anyway. The prunus part is Latin, but the mume actually comes from Japanese because that's what plums used to be called in Japan. And now mume has morphed into ume. Yeah. But that tree is actually not even indigenous to Japan. I got one guess where it came from, Jason. I bet you're going to be right. (laughs) China. You got it. Yeah, it's commonly known as the Chinese plum or the Japanese plum or the Japanese apricot, because the species is actually related to both plum and apricot trees, but it's closer to the apricot, apparently. Yeah, it's really its own thing, which is pretty cool. So these trees produce flowers, yes? Yep. Have you seen these flowers, Paul? 
Only in pictures. Are you, you think so? I think so. I swear we saw some on our trip. Do you think they were still blooming that late? I think just based on the color, they must have been. Okay. They must have been ume trees. Because they definitely, like we saw a lot of pink trees that were not cherry blossom trees, right? Yeah. Maybe in Nico we saw some that were still blooming. Yeah, that's specifically what I was thinking. On that walk to the, uh, what was that disappointing? The botanical park? gardens? Yes, that, yeah. Yeah, not in the botanical gardens, but right. walking to the botanical gardens, we, we saw some We walked right cool, past some, I think. Very bright pink flowers on trees. Yeah. So yeah, these blossoms bloom around late winter to early spring. We were there in early spring, so that makes perfect sense, right? Yeah. And you might confuse them with cherry blossoms. The colors can be similar because there's a wide range of colors you can see on these plum trees. But generally, they'll bloom a little earlier. And if you look closely, you will see quite a few differences in the details of these flowers. The flowers are about an inch or slightly less in diameter usually and have varying shades of colors from white to pink to red. I even saw somewhere said that they could even be yellow. I believe it. There's a lot of varieties of this tree. Yeah. I think most of the ones that I've seen, at least the ones that were easily recognizable, were like pretty bright pink, almost like magenta. Yeah, very pink. Highlighter pink almost. Yeah. And the flowers are rounder than cherry blossoms. Did you say they're round? No. They're round. And if you look at the petals closely, they don't have this little split at the end. Cherry blossoms do. They have like a little indent kind of in the middle of the petal. Yeah, yeah. Ume blossoms don't. Okay. So there you go. So like with cherry trees, once the flower petals fall off the tree, leaves start to appear and the fruits start showing up. Yeah, the fruits usually ripen in early summer and... They are their own very unique flavor. They have a fragrance that's closer to apricots, but they've got the color of an orange, and they're very acidic, similar to how berries are. And the acid makes them extremely tart and bitter and not tasty. Like, if you just pick one off the tree and eat it, it's going to be gross. Yeah, they're not just eaten by themselves. So they're a little smaller than a golf ball. They're green when they're not ripe, and then as they ripen, they turn to the the yellow, and then as they get like perfectly ripe, they have kind of this reddish blush on them. It, it looks a lot like a little tiny apricot, right? Yeah. I don't eat a lot of apricots, but I, I think that's what they look like. It yeah? is, yeah. But yeah, they don't taste good, and they're probably going to like make you sick. Like Your stomach's going to hurt if you eat them, but there are a bunch of ways that you can process them to make them tastier and more edible. Mm-hmm. Also, like cherry trees, there are a bunch of different cultivars. Like we said, there are all those different colors. People have been cultivating these trees for centuries to try to get specific characteristics out of them, especially with the types of flowers and the types of fruits. Let's talk about history, Paul. Always love to talk history, Jason. I know you do, (laughs) as do I. So as we mentioned, Ume came to Japan from China. They're actually mentioned in the oldest medical document in China, which was written about 2,000 years ago. Wow. Did you know that? No, I didn't. It says that they're good for relieving irritation caused by fever, good for calming the mind, and alleviating pain in the limbs. 
And okay. As we will see, there are a lot of health benefits attributed to these things. Yeah, there are. Paul, do you know when Ume came to Japan? Best number I saw was around 300 BCE. That's what I saw too. I don't think anyone knows exactly. Which is really interesting because so many things came over from China in the 5th and 6th centuries, but these came long before. Mm -hmm. The pits of Ume have been found in Kofun archaeological sites, which are those really big key-shaped mound tombs that they used to build in Japan in ancient times. Yeah. So the trees were around for a while, the fruits were around for a while, but in the late 500s, the Chinese brought over a medicine called ubai, which was a dried or smoked green ume, so an unripe ume. And these are actually even still used in Chinese medicine today. And this is probably where Japan first got that idea of using these things as medicine. Yeah. So in the Nara period, in the 700s, ume made their way into Japanese poetry. Did you read anything about the Manyoshu, Paul? I did. The 108th poem of that collection references ume, and that poem was actually the inspiration for the current era name in Japan. We're in the Reiwa era, and that comes from that poem. That's awesome. Yeah. I'm not sure how many poems are in that collection in total, but I saw that 118 of them are about the ume. That's a lot. Yeah. It's a popular plant. I guess now I'm wondering, they must have been about the flowers, right? Not the fruit specifically. I would guess that most of them were. I remember we've talked before, it must have been in the cherry blossoms episode, we said that way back when, when people were uh, doing hanami and people were writing poems about flowers and using the word hana, which means flower, they were almost always referring to the plum blossoms instead of the cherry blossoms. Yeah, plum blossom viewing was popular before cherry blossom viewing was. Yeah. So Japan's oldest medical document is from about 950 CE, during the Heian period. It talks about umeboshi and lists several health benefits similar to that medical document from China. But they also said that umeboshi calm the heart, they treat poor skin, and they stop diarrhea and promote saliva production. Less diarrhea, more saliva. That sounds pretty good to me, right? Both good. And I find it interesting that they specifically mention umeboshi already at that time. Yeah. So they're already talking about pickled plums. Yeah. So in the Muromachi period, warriors carried umeboshi to the battlefield with them. We're talking samurai times now. Yeah. Samurai were running around with a pouch of umeboshi because they were really easy to carry they don't spoil easily. They're easy to make. They're small. Like it's kind of the perfect samurai food, right? Yeah. I also saw that the citric acid in them supposedly helps break down lactic acid, aiding in recovery between battles. I heard that too. So umeboshi were kind of like Gatorade before there was Gatorade. <laughs> That's a fun way to put it. Yeah. So at this point, umeboshi were still only eaten as medicine and, you know, a medicine that helps with fatigue, that's pretty perfect for a samurai. They're also supposed to increase appetite. That would be another good thing, I guess, when you're burning a bunch of calories fighting dudes. Yeah, absolutely. 
So supposedly, this is actually how ume trees originally spread all over Japan. Like across the whole country, all these samurai are riding around, eating umeboshi, presumably spitting the seeds on the ground, right? Yeah. And then you got a bunch of trees sprouting up. I don't think we mentioned, too, that umeboshi have like a pit in the middle. Yeah. Like when you pickle them, you don't pull out that pit. So be careful if you're biting into one of those. Yeah. There were probably also feudal lords that were thinking about feeding their armies and maybe uh, grew some trees to provide their samurai with a good medicine. Sure. I found an interesting connection between Ume and Tokugawa Ieyasu. And what's that? So he spent the last years of his life at Sumpu Castle, which is in Shizuoka Prefecture. You can actually still go there, visit this castle. And there was an Ume tree there that he supposedly planted himself. Is there a reason he did that, or he just liked Ume? I don't know. Okay. Maybe he just liked him. It must be important if the big man himself is planting a tree, right? Apparently it was important because after he died, it became customary to make umeboshi from that tree at the castle and then bring them to Niko Toshogu Shrine, which is the big elaborate shrine that was built as Tokugawa Ieyasu's mausoleum. And then eventually they even transferred the tree from the castle to the shrine. Wow. He must have had some real personal connection with this tree, right? Yeah. So in the Edo period, umeboshi became popular across the country for all classes of society. And I think this is where it really cemented its place as an important part of traditional Japanese cuisine. Agreed. Also in the Edo period, going along with ume's growing popularity, the lord of Tanabe started allowing farmers to use the rocky mountain land to produce ume because normal crops wouldn't grow well there. And to this day, that is known as a really high-quality ume-producing spot in Japan. And they still ship it out all over Japan from that area. Nice. Toward the end of the Edo period, around the year 1800, there were a couple cholera epidemics. And umeboshi were used as a treatment for that. Apparently, cholera bacteria can be destroyed with the acid from umeboshi. That's awesome. Yeah. Cholera is awful. Apparently, they didn't even know that at the time. They just knew that umeboshi were good for you. You know, one of those things with like traditional medicine where they figure out, oh, this, this is good for you. And then later on, when people start doing the science and stuff, they figure out, oh, yeah, there actually is something here, you know? That reminds me of like the first doctor that realized when he washed his hands before surgery, his patients didn't get infected. And he tried telling everybody about that and like nobody took him seriously because he didn't have a mechanism. He didn't have studies and data. And then like a hundred years later, we found out about germs. Yeah. And everybody realized, oh, we should wash our hands before doing stuff like that. Funny how that works. Yeah. And yeah, ume are considered a health food today. I read about a series of home medicine manuals, first published in 1925 and still published today, that talk about the benefits of ume extract. Oh. A lot of good stuff in there. I just like pickles in general. You should have a healthy amount of pickled anything in your diet. Yeah, I think that's true. And, I mean, pickles, we've talked before about how those were an essential part of the traditional Japanese diet. Your basic meal was rice and miso soup and some pickles. And those pickles do so much for you. 
I'm personally not a big fan of cucumber pickles, like the pickles that you commonly see on burgers and stuff. Disagree. I've tried many times to get into them. Every time it's like, okay, I haven't had one of these in several years. Maybe I'll maybe I'll like them now. Nope. <laughs> Always gross every time. But I can do Japanese pickles. I can do actually, you know what? I've made cucumber pickles myself just with salt. Yeah. Like instead of the brine and the dill and whatever else they put in there. Yeah, your little pickle press. Yeah. I like those. Those are good. They're different though from like kosher pickles you'd get at a supermarket here. Totally. Well, Jace, you want to talk a little bit more about ume flowers? I do. Me too. Good. Everything worked out then. (laughs) So we talked about how ume flowers tend to bloom in late winter to really early spring. With that comes this huge tie-in culturally to springtime. Yeah. Ume flowers are springtime. That goes back to China even. Like, these flowers aren't just a popular visual motif in Japan, but in several Asian countries. Traditional art from China, Korea, Vietnam, other countries around there feature ume heavily. In traditional Japanese poetry, ume are what's called a kigo, or a season word that represents early spring. So if you're trying to call early spring, that's like a go-to word to represent that in poetry. That makes sense. Uh, They're also depicted on one of the suits of Hanafuda, traditional Japanese playing cards. Yeah. Several important families throughout history have used the ume blossom in their family crest, which is kind of fun. There are even a lot of family names that contain the kanji for ume. And uh, again, going back to China, this idea has its roots in China, but you see it in Japan a lot too. Ume are known as one of the three friends of winter, or the shochikubai. Oh. So this is an art motif that you see a lot in reference to winter. And I think it's kind of the the ume are kind of the end of winter, early of spring. It's like it indicates that transition into spring. Yeah, absolutely. So these three friends of winter are pine, bamboo, and plum. And the idea is that All three of these don't wither as the weather gets colder. So they're associated with the New Year season. You see them on greeting cards. Uh, Apparently, ume bonsai trees are used to celebrate New Year's. That'd be kind of cool to see. Yeah. And, Paul, have you ever seen these used to represent tiers as like a, a ranking system sort of thing? The plum, bamboo, and pine? Hmm, not that I recall. I've seen it a few times on menus, and maybe somewhere else where it's like, here's kind of the basic option, here's the middle tier one, and then here's like the big expensive premium thing. Are the plum blossoms top tier? Plums are actually the bottom tier, the cheapest one. Everyone enjoys them. Yeah. It's for the people, right? For everybody. Yeah. Or something. Well, what's exclusive? Uh, Pine is the most expensive. Bamboo's in the middle. Okay. Yeah. Also in Japan, you'll just see these ume blossoms on all sorts of things. Kimono, of course. We've talked about how kimono designs are all about the seasons, right? Yeah, yeah. Don't wear 
a plum blossom kimono in late spring. No, oh, no, 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 no. You're how, behind. How gauche. <laughs> One thing I thought was interesting is that Japanese tradition holds ume as a kind of protective charm against evil. And therefore, traditionally, the ume trees are planted in the northeast of the garden, which is the evil direction or the direction that evil comes from. So the trees protect you and your land. That's cool. Yeah. Next time I'm in a Japanese garden, I'm going to find the plum trees. I'm going to pull out my compass and I'm going to figure out, are these in the northwest corner? Can you say northeast? I did. Okay. <laughs> well, if they're in the northwest corner, they're wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we mentioned Hanami in the history section, and there's an idea that Hanami might have originated from a Chinese custom where people would hang out and drink wine and read poetry under plum blossoms. That idea came over to Japan, and as I mentioned, during the Nara period in the 700s, those ume blossoms were more popular. It wasn't until after that that cherry blossoms took over the whole hanami idea. Yeah. But people still do go out to look at the plum blossoms these days, right, Paul? Absolutely. There's a bunch of places to view them. And a bunch of festivals based around viewing them. Yes, absolutely. Of course, these festivals are just going to happen a little bit earlier than the cherry blossom festivals. So yeah, depending on where you are in Japan, you might need to dress kind of warmly if you're going to be outside in the uh, late winter, early spring. That would be a good idea. Paul, do you know what the number one location for plum blossom viewing is? Um, Yushima Tenjin Shrine? Not what I heard. Osaka Castle Park? No. Did you hear any? Kitano? (laughs) No. (laughs) Okay, all right. You should just tell me. Did you hear people talking about Wakayama at all? Uh, a little, I, little bit. I yeah. kept coming across a bunch of different sources that are all like Wakayama. That's the place. Okay. So okay. Minabe in Wakayama is considered the hometown of the Ume. I've been trying to study my Japanese prefectures. Are we talking on the coast south of Osaka? Yeah, Wakayama Prefecture has a fair bit of coastline. And it's pretty much just straight south from Osaka, like the whole woodsy kind of area. It's where Koyasan is. That's what I remembered. I remember being in Wakayama when I visited Koyasan. Oh, okay, okay. I don't think I've been to Wakayama yet. I haven't had the pleasure. It's pretty. I have some pictures from there that uh, some of my favorites. Nice. So yeah, a huge amount of the ume in Japan are grown and processed around Minabe in Wakayama Prefecture. But if you're in Tokyo, check out the Bunkyo Plum Blossom Festival. That's the one at the shrine that you mentioned, Paul, the Yushima Tenmangu Shrine. Yeah. It's been a popular plum blossom viewing spot for hundreds of years. They have over 300 trees. And if you're a student, that's even better because the Shinto deity of learning is enshrined there. Perfect. You can also stop by Hanegi Park, which is also in Tokyo, they have a Plum Blossom Festival with a bunch of cultural events. They have koto performances, haiku classes, tea ceremonies, and mochi pounding. I still haven't experienced pounding mochi, but that sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, I would love to pound some mochi. I also saw that you can get a bunch of plum-flavored treats there, which is probably pretty standard for these types of affairs, I yeah, would guess. Yeah, yeah. That sounds good. 
So that's just a couple, but there are a bunch of ume festivals. So if you're in Japan in February, definitely look those up. Ready to talk some umeboshi, Paul? Absolutely. I'm getting hungry now. Let's talk food. Okay. So as we said, umeboshi are pickled plums, but they're not just pickled. They're also dried. It's not an umeboshi if it's not dried, technically. If you just pickle an ume, that's called umezuke. Ume pickle. Yeah. But when you dry them too, then they're umeboshi. Okay. So what do these things look and taste like, Paul? Describe them to me in extreme detail, please. <laughs> okay. Um, they're often bright red and small withered circle. Circle, like a flat two-dimensional shape? Um, no, it's not flat. They don't quite hold a perfect sphere. <laughs> they don't quite hold a perfect sphere, but uh, they're they're a little bit round all the way around. Kind of wrinkly though, right? Oh, very wrinkly. Yeah, sometimes you see like bright red ones. I feel like I've often seen ones that are kind of more brownish or even yellowish or very pale pink almost. Yeah, yeah. And what do they taste like? Well, they're salty because they're pickled with a lot of salt. Yep. They've also got a sour flavor. So it's very, very strong. Like you don't want to eat a lot of these. They're super intense. Like one of them is enough to flavor your entire bowl of rice. One of them, if you pop it into your mouth, it's going to like turn your face inside out. Yeah, you don't just eat them like munch, munch. Unless you're a samurai and really need it, right? (laughs) Yeah. I also saw there are sweeter versions Like, they can be sweetened with different things, and we'll get into the process of making them and stuff, but I don't think I've really had one that I would call sweet. I don't think I have either. Paul, have you ever bought a container of umeboshi? Yeah. Did you use all of them, or did you end up throwing some out? I don't think I've ever gotten through a whole container. Me too. Because I always thought, like, you just stick it on rice, and that's kind of it, you know? That's the only thing I thought to do with them. But... I learned about so many cool recipes in my research. Like, I have so many ways to use these now. I feel like I could use a whole container. Oh, you want to share a couple of the more exciting ones? I would love to. I have a big list. Okay. Okay. So, like you said, they're commonly used on rice. Like, a whole bowl of rice, you just stick one on there, and you can just kind of smash it up and mush it around and mix it in with the rice, and it's, like, got plenty of flavor for that whole bowl of rice, right? Yeah. Probably the most common way. To enjoy them. You can also make ochazuke. You ever had that, Paul? Ocha, ocha pickles? So ocha is tea, right? Okay. So basically, this is a bowl of rice with an umeboshi and then tea, uh, green tea poured. I've never it. had the tea rice. The recipe I saw said you put some instant dashi on your rice, add some shredded nori seaweed, Sprinkle some sesame seeds on there, stick the umeboshi on top, and then just pour the green tea over everything. Sounds good. I want to try that. Yeah. Uh, You can put umeboshi inside onigiri. You've had that, I think. Oh, I love it. Kind of the same as just a bowl of rice with umeboshi, you know, pretty close. Yeah, yeah. Maki sushi, which is like a sushi roll. You could stick some ume in there. Yeah, don't they use like ume paste almost for those usually? Yeah, that makes sense. Have you had that? I mean, that would be a vegan version, vegan sushi. Not lately, but I think I have. Okay. 
I saw you can put umeboshi in teriyaki sauce for a kick. Oh. That, that sounds w- kind of cool. That would be a kick. Yeah. And there are a few ways to make umeboshi into a kind of tea. So one option is you just break apart like the flesh. You throw that in a teacup and pour hot water over it. And then there you go. You got some umeboshi tea, right? Or you could take just the seed, the little pit in the middle, throw that in a teacup, pour green tea over that. And now you got another little variation of umeboshi tea. A bunch of variations, I think, on how to like mix hot water or some other sort of tea with the umeboshi flavor. Sure. That'd be kind of fun to try. Yeah. You can add umeboshi to udon or somen noodles for, again, just that little acidic kick. Yeah. You could chop up an umeboshi and put it in miso soup. I want to oh, try that. Yeah, that might be nice. Yeah. Just add another little dimension yeah. to the flavor. I saw that you want to use less miso, though, if you do that, because the umeboshi is so salty. Okay, sure. You don't want it to get too salty. Yeah. This recipe looked really good. You take a cucumber and you kind of lightly crush it. Like this guy was kind of smacking it with like a rolling pin. Okay. And then he chopped that up. So you got all this like crushed cucumber. Stick that in a bowl. Mix in a chopped umeboshi. Drizzle in a little sesame oil. And then top it with bonito flakes. Those like fish flakes. You could leave that part out, I'm sure. Sure. And then just mix that all together. That's supposed to be really good. Okay. I do love cucumber. You can eat umeboshi with tofu. I mean, you can eat tofu with almost anything, of course, but... Yeah. So one of my favorite tofu dishes is called hiyayako. It's popular in summer in Japan. It's kind of just a really, like, light, refreshing thing. You got, like, a chunk of the silken tofu. Stick that on a plate. You top it with those fish flakes, maybe a little green onion, some soy sauce, or mensuyu, which is, like, a little soup sauce broth sort of thing. You could put chopped umeboshi on that. Okay. I have a salad dressing recipe for you. It's even vegan ball. Let's go. One tablespoon of olive oil, a half tablespoon of vinegar, one teaspoon of sugar, a quarter teaspoon of soy sauce, and a chopped umeboshi. That sounds great. Yeah, I really want to try that. Umeboshi sounds like... A perfect flavor to add to a salad dressing. Totally. Because you want the salad dressing to be a strong flavor to flavor all your greens you're eating. Exactly. I got to get a container of these now. Me too. Now I know how to use it. Now I'll use the whole thing. Yeah. When's the cookbook coming, Jason? (laughs) I don't know if that's my job. If you go on on YouTube, you'll find a bunch of great videos about like ways to use umeboshi. Actually, I think I have it written down somewhere, don't I? I swear I wrote it down. There was this one YouTube channel where I found a lot of these recipes and it was just like this incredibly charming Japanese guy that's just like so enthusiastic about all these recipes and like he makes it and then tastes it and he's like, mm, this is so good. And like, <laughs> I just loved his, uh, his very wholesome attitude. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's cool. Anyway, I also saw him like chop up an umeboshi and put it in a tuna salad sandwich. I thought that sounded really good. Oh. Okay, I found it. The YouTube channel is Tabi Eats Recipes. T-A-B-I Eats Recipes. Simple enough? Yeah. I might want to try that recipe with uh, the chickpea salad sandwiches I make. Oh, yeah, those are good. That sounds kind of like a nice little added kick. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
I can think of so many things where, I mean, I think as my cooking skills have evolved, as I've grown, I've come to realize the importance of acid in foods, you know? Like, you can make anything delicious with fat and salt. That's kind of one of the first things I learned. But add a little acidity, and it just enhances anything, you know? Agreed. Like fatty stuff, sweet stuff, a little acidity is good. And umeboshi can offer that. You know what I'm starting to think of now is all the recipes that use cranberry. You know how cranberries aren't really good on their own? They're too sour. They're too acidic. Yeah. I feel like maybe you could sub in umeboshi for cranberry in a lot of things. Totally. To get that extra little tang. Dude, now I'm thinking it'd be really fun to show up to Thanksgiving dinner with a bunch of mashed umeboshi instead of cranberry sauce <laughs> and just like see how, watch people react, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that'd be interesting. <laughs> They'd be surprised. Let me know how your family likes that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like my family was never big into the cranberry sauce anyway. I know some people like just get a whole can of that, stick it on a plate. Yeah. And it's still like got the indents from the yeah, can. That, that's how my family did it. Yeah. Straight out of the can. <laughs> Yeah, and I that's loved exactly it. the sound. I it loved it. I would take a huge <laughs> scoop every time. Huh. Yeah, I was never into cranberries that much, but so I didn't have a whole section about the health benefits. But I guess I was going to mention them here. Okay. So, like I said, umeboshi are supposed to have a bunch of health benefits: eating, digestion, preventing nausea, curing hangovers. Oh, yeah, we got to oh. try that out. A 2018 study even found that umeboshi may have anti-allergic effects. Really? Yeah. Okay, allergies have been kicking my butt this year. Yeah. I really got to go buy a jar of umeboshi now. Yeah, for like oh a week goodness. during our trip, I was feeling the allergies pretty bad. Even though I'd had them under control, I think it was that day when I drank too much at that karaoke bar, yeah, like the next day it hit me. I don't know if the, the alcohol like messed up my allergy medication or something. Maybe it inflamed you a little bit and then combined with the pollen. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. You know what else I read recently is really good for allergies is you've heard of the neti pot, right? Yeah. Apparently that like cuts down people's allergies symptoms a lot. Okay. So I was kind of thinking of trying that. You've never tried that, have you? No. Like the whole idea of pouring water into your nose seems really weird and uncomfortable. But yeah. but if it actually works for allergies, maybe it's worth it. Yeah, we sell them at my work. People swear by them. You should take one off the shelf, give it a try. <laughs> Stick it on my nose, put it back on the shelf. Yeah. Nah. If we get one returned, maybe I'll maybe I'll write it off and give it a try. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Just boil some water first. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll sanitize it. Yep. Paul, shall we learn how umeboshi are made? Yes. Let's talk about that a little bit. Okay. So you got to start with the ume. They collect them with these huge nets they put out around the trees. So the ripe ones fall off land in the nets. They don't get bruised. You get the highest quality ume fruit possible. Nice. Yeah, you do want, I mean, you want them when they're ripe, for one thing, and you want them to be as perfect as possible. Like, you don't want blemishes and bruises and stuff on there because they're not going to be pretty, and you might introduce bad bacteria into the pickling process, right? Don't want that. 
So once you got your perfect little ripe ume, you're going to wash and dry them. Mm. You want to layer them with a whole bunch of salt. I saw a 10 to 20% salt by weight. I saw some videos of it, and they were just dousing these things in salt. Yeah, pickling takes a lot of salt. I also saw somebody add a little shochu, which is just like uh, distilled alcohol, to prevent mold. Okay. And then you're going to put a weight on top of all these layered ume, and wait about a week. And this is basically how any kind of salt pickles, or shiozuke, are made. And Paul, you mentioned that I have that pickle press. Yeah. It basically does this exact thing. Like you just take any kind of vegetable or whatever you want to pickle, mix it with salt, stick it in there. And then the pickle press has like this knob on the top that you turn and it tightens this spring that's attached to this like round plate thing that kind of presses down onto the pickles. And what happens is that salt and the pressure suck out moisture. And so eventually, whatever you're pickling is actually just sitting in its own juices. Yeah. So those, like those salt pickled cucumbers I was talking about, they get really crispy and crunchy, which I find really pleasing. Yeah. Because all the moisture gets pulled out of them. Pickles got to be crispy. Soggy pickles, no thanks. That's right. Although the umeboshi don't get crispy, but that's different. Right. Because I said so. Well, they have a lot more moisture in them than cucumbers in the first place. Because they're fruit instead of a vegetable, right? Cucumbers are very watery, I would say. Yeah, you're right. Scratch that. <laughs> but cucumbers are fruit probably too. Anyways, I if, guess we're gonna, so, if we're right? going to think about it, right? Technically, because they have yeah. seed. No, wait. What the is seeds it? are on the inside. They have seeds on the inside. It's fruit, right? Is that how that works? I think so. In my mind, it's like, if it's sweet, it's a fruit. If it's not sweet, I'm calling it a vegetable, and I don't care. Yeah. I can never keep track of... I feel like every few years, somebody's like, oh, no, this is how you determine what's a vegetable (laughs) and a fruit. I I don't care how other people classify it. In my mind, I've got fruit, and I've got vegetables. and I don't care how they're classified botanically. I'm only worried about how they're classified culinarily. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Is that a word? Did I use... I think that's a word. Culinarily. (laughs) Sure. I'm going with it. Just got to say it with confidence. (laughs) And it's a thing. Okay. So anyway. Okay. So we were talking about the the juices get sucked out, right? And at this point, that juice can actually be collected and it's sold as something called shira umezu, which means white ume vinegar. Although technically it's not actually vinegar. Okay, so we said the umeboshi are kind of reddish. Where does that color come from, Paul? Because these fruits aren't red. Right. Comes from shiso leaves that are very commonly mixed in. Yeah, they, they're these red leaves that basically dye the umeboshi and also give them a richer flavor. So shiso is an herb related to mint, mm-hmm. I learned. Yeah. I didn't realize they were related because it doesn't really taste like mint. Yeah. I looked into shiso a little bit. And found all these recipes that use it. A lot of cocktails, too. Mm. Like they have shiso mojito recipes where you're using shiso instead of mint. Interesting. Look like some good stuff. Yeah, I'd try that. I also learned that they're what was originally used in bento boxes to divide the different things inside. 
And that's why you get a bento box today and they have those little plastic sawtoothed green things. Yeah. They're sawtoothed because the shiso leaf is sawtoothed like that. That makes sense. So they're, they're sense. like fake shiso leaves. Cool. I th- I'm pretty sure I've seen sushi served on shiso leaves too. That's pretty common. Yeah. And we should say like, there's green shiso and purple shiso, right? Mm. Is that the impression you got? Yeah, there's definitely green ones. Those are the ones that you see with the sushi. Yeah. But the purple ones are the ones you're using to dye the ume. Yes. I'm not sure if those are different species or if it changes color as it matures or something. I'm not sure. I, I did not find that out. All right. Well, anyway, that's what we know about shiso. <laughs> yeah. So you can basically massage this purple shiso with salt and get some of that moisture out initially. It also, I think, is really bitter at first, and massaging the salt kind of gets out that bitterness as well. And then you can mix the shiso with a little bit of that ume juice, and then what I saw them doing is like just laying the shiso on top of the ume. Like it's not even layered in between. They just kind of stuck a single layer of the shiso on the very top. And yeah, then the red just stuff soaks kinda, in. Yeah, it trickles down. Yeah. And then once you do that, you can stick the weight back on and leave it for a month. Yep. A long process. Over that month, the ume get pickled in their juices, and now they're pickled plums. But that's not what makes them umeboshi, right, Paul? They still have to be dried, right? I think so. So lay them out in the sun on top of some bamboo mats for a few days. I saw that you want to flip them one to two times each day and take them inside at night. Makes sense. Yep. You can also sun dry those shiso leaves. Oh, what Stick do you do with those, those on some bamboo mats? Once they're dry, you can grind it up and use it as furikake, which is like a rice topping. I've actually bought this before, a little container of shiso furikake. And uh, I was not a fan, okay. to be honest. Fair enough. I don't know. It's, it's a weird flavor. Maybe if you put an umeboshi on the rice and then the shiso, it would somehow work. Maybe. I don't know. Yeah. It's okay to not like things. Yeah. I actually have this salmon furikake I've been using lately instead. It's got like little dried salmon bits and seaweed and, and sesame seeds and stuff. Really good. Okay. I've been enjoying that. So at this point, again, you're going to have that liquid left over in the container but now it's red. It's been colored from that shiso. So you can collect this, and, and they package and sell this stuff too. But at this point, it's called Aka Umezu instead of Shira Umezu. Aka means red. So this is red ume vinegar. Although, again, technically not vinegar. But you can actually use that to make red pickled ginger, I found out. Oh. Like the ginger that you eat with sushi. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Why is so much pickled ginger red? Right. Okay. Isn't that cool? Now I know. Yeah. I'm not a pickled ginger guy, though. Really? Oh, I love pickled ginger. I'm one ginger. of the few that just like doesn't do it for me. I, I'm mm. just going to eat my sushi. I'm not going to eat the pickled ginger. Yeah. Yi is a huge fan, too. She'll, like, she'll eat big chunks of it, and she's always grabbing it off my plate when we go get sushi. She's okay. like, you're not going to eat all of that, right? Yeah. They give you a lot. They do, yeah. I think it's supposed to be a palate cleanser. Yeah, that's what I So you can try the different flavors and get the full experience of the new flavor. Yeah. You know, at least in the U.S., like, sushi is so expensive. Like, to go out and get a sushi dinner is kind of an event. Yeah. So I always try to, like, 
do everything I can to get the most enjoyment possible out of it. Yeah, all you can eat sushi. <laughs> well, that's one way to do it, I guess. <laughs> but I like to have the ginger like between each different piece of sushi. I do the ginger and then sip some water so that my palate is entirely cleansed before I bite into that next piece. Yeah? Yeah. I think that's how you're supposed to do it. It's a, it's a good method. I just stuffed three different rolls in my mouth at the same time, and I'm like, oh, flavor's mixing. <laughs> that's valid, too. You know, I actually like that about like the Japanese philosophy around eating. I've noticed that in a lot of different dishes, there will be like different ways to enjoy it. And they, they sometimes even recommend to you like, oh, here's how we recommend that you eat this just to get the most variety and the most enjoyment out of it. For example, at tempura places I've been to, they'll be like, okay, so you got some salt here. And then we got some uh, special like seasoned salt. And then we got this sauce over here. And when they put each piece on your plate, they're like, okay, this piece I recommend to try with the salt. And then the next one you can try with this other thing. So it's like you get all these different flavor combinations and you can kind of experiment with it. Or if they give you tempura like on a bowl of rice, they'll be like, okay, so eat the tempura on its own first. So you get that ultimate crispy texture and then we're going to pour some sauce over it. And then you get like the tempura that soaked up this sauce. You know what I mean? Yeah. I like that. Yeah, me too. Anyway, back to the umeboshi process. So this method that we've described is pretty traditional. Like that's how they've been made for hundreds and hundreds of years. And you can do that yourself. Like it's pretty simple. If you just get your hands on some ume. You can make your own umeboshi, no problem. Yeah. It just takes a little time. But of course, commercially, a lot of them are made less traditionally with machines and stuff that kind of replicate this process. Sure. And once you get to the end of that process, they can also be further processed. For example, sometimes some of the salt is removed from them, and then they're soaked in a flavoring liquid. Artificially flavored, huh? Feels like cheating, kind of. Yeah. Like, it feels like you could kind of uh, cut corners on the process and then just artificially flavor them to make up for that later on. Yeah. Yeah, give me that real shiso umeboshi. Yeah. But maybe it's not always artificial flavoring. I saw they can be flavored with katsuobushi, which is bonito flakes, those fish flakes that are important in Japanese yeah, yeah. cuisine. Yeah, pass. Paul will pass. <laughs> they can be flavored with kombu, which is kelp. Yeah, which is there seaweed. we go. You would eat that, right? There we go, yep. Or they can be sweetened, as I mentioned before, with honey or sugar. I feel like I've seen honey sweetened ones in the store. That sounds familiar to me, too. And then natural or artificial preservatives can also be added sure. to increase shelf life, sure. of course. Another thing I came across in my research that I have not seen in person is... Shiso-wrapped umeboshi is a thing. Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen that. Oh. These are supposed to be a little spicy with a hint of cinnamon. Oh, okay. And the shiso leaves are good for you, too. They're supposed to be rich in calcium and iron. Okay. Spicy, sour, and acidic. Add in a little sugar, and you've got all the flavors. Yeah. Well, there's one more really popular way to enjoy ume, Jason. 
Oh, you and I have both uh, partaken in this a little bit before. Oh, umeshu. Oh, or plum wine. You could say. You could say that. It wouldn't be entirely accurate, but you could say it. Yeah. So it's uh, alcohol made with ume. At least flavored with ume. The alcohol itself isn't really made with ume. Correct. So this stuff is very sweet. Yes. Much sweeter than wine. Yes. I think it's more accurate to call it a liqueur than a wine, really. Yeah, probably. It's the type of stuff where I like one glass, but I can't drink two, three glasses. It's way too sweet. Yeah, I don't even want to drink it straight. Like, it's so syrupy sweet. I'd rather just mix it with something. And there are a bunch of different ways you can enjoy this stuff. Yeah. Some of them I haven't tried before, but I was seeing all these different drink recipes. And, oh, man, umeshu soda? That sounds kind of good because that would cut the sugar a little bit, mixing it with some soda water on the rocks. Exactly. That I want to try. Yeah, you can mix it with tonic water too, or you could even just mix it with green tea or warm water. Yeah. You want a hot drink in the colder months maybe? I saw people even mix it with milk or yogurt. Sounds weird, but I would try it. Okay, sure. I saw umeshu is commonly served at Japanese restaurants as an aperitif. It's supposed to, again, stimulate your appetite, just like umeboshi. Yeah. Another interesting thing about umeshu is that it can be drinking, <laughs> drinking, it can be drunk, chilled. Is it drank? Is that the word? <laughs> Maybe that's the word I'm looking for. I'm not I, even. I, I'm over two already, so I'm just going to leave it at that. <laughs> but it could be chilled. It could be on the rocks. But in winter, it can be served hot sometimes too, which I've never had before. Well, you're saying without hot water and stuff, you're saying you just heat up the umeshu and drink it like that? Yes. Okay. Interesting. I like warm liquor in winter. It's just so strong. I mean, strong flavored, not strong like alcoholicness. Yeah, usually around 10 to 15% alcohol. Another cool thing about umeshu is there are ume in the bottle. You'll see them floating around in there. At least sometimes. I mean, it depends on the often. brand, right? Yeah, yeah. But yeah, we've definitely, the bottle that we got and shared that had some in there. Those are the ones I buy. Because for me, like, yeah, I got to get, I got to get the ume in there. I think around here, that's really the, there's only one brand that we really have available <laughs> to us and yeah. it has the ume in there. But yeah, you know, there's this restaurant that Ye and I go to sometimes for lunch for Bon Mies. It's like a Vietnamese place. And they have a bottle of that same brand of umeshu, I, I see it every time in there, just like behind the, the little counter there. It's always just sitting there. It never moves. I got to ask him, like, what is that doing there? Like, why, why do you have that? Is it opened? No, it's like clearly still wrapped in the plastic. It hasn't been opened. Is it on the menu? No, I don't think they have a liquor license. Okay, okay. So it's like, are you just aging it there? Yeah, or it was a gift or a good luck charm? I wonder. Yeah. Huh. Maybe I'll ask. I'll ask next time. Is I'll it in the back. northeast side of the building? Ooh. Oh, man. I don't know. <laughs> I'll have to check. I'll let you know. Yeah. So let's talk about how this umeshu is made. Because again, it's a pretty simple process, similar to umeboshi in the simplicity of it. And you could do it yourself. Absolutely. 
One difference from umeboshi is you're going to use unripe plums. Yeah, they got to be green. If they're yellow, they're too mature. So basically, you just take a bunch of those green plums, you stick them in shochu, again, just like distilled alcohol, and you put a bunch of sugar in there to make it sweet. Yep. The recipe I saw said one kilogram of ume, 500 grams to one kilogram of rock sugar, and 1.8 liters of shochu. So you can tell just from those ratios there, that's like, that's a ton of sugar. It's a lot of sugar. So a little more detail about the shochu. It's a clear, neutral spirit, normally 35% alcohol. But if you don't have shochu, because it's kind of hard to get outside of Japan, you can use vodka instead. It's a very similar spirit. I even saw you could use brandy or rum or gin. Yeah, why not? Although, of course, those are going to add a little bit of other flavors. But with all that sugar and all the ume... Brandy's already so sweet. Oof, yeah. That would be, I oh. don't know. Probably don't need to add as much sugar, I would guess, if you're <laughs> using brandy. Yeah. And as for the sugar, I mentioned rock sugar. Do you know what rock sugar is, Paul? What? What? I mean, I think it's like clumped sugar, right? Like, yeah, it makes me think of like rock candy. Yeah, or like cubes of sugar or it's something like, like giant that. giant crystals of sugar. Yeah. If you don't have that, you can use granulated sugar or brown sugar or honey but I saw that the reason rock sugar is recommended is apparently it affects the osmotic pressure and extracts the ume essence at just the right rate. I okay. guess like as it dissolves, it affects you know how much it's pulling out the, the ume juice. Maybe it dissolves slower. Yeah, yeah. So you mix all that stuff together. You store it in a cold, dark place for three months and boom, you got ume shu. Awesome. You, you going to drink it right away, Paul? I might wait a few more months. I saw that it's best to let it ripen for at least another six months. This reminded me of mead. I mentioned before I've made mead, and uh, that stuff just got better and better the longer you let it sit, and the flavors kind of mesh and mellow out over time. Less of that acidity. So if you want to make some umeshu, Google it. There are a bunch of recipes out there. But if you want to buy it from a store, you want to check the label because there's a lot of different stuff out there made in different ways. And, you know, we like to go for the most authentic stuff, right, Paul? Yeah, yeah. So you want the Honkaku Umeshu. Exactly. That is made without other additives. It's just the Ume, the sugar, and the alcohol. Yep. If you don't see Honkaku Umeshu, they might have added some flavorings and who knows what those are i want the stuff people were drinking hundreds and hundreds of years ago before we had all these fancy machines right yeah so as for those plums sitting in the bottle whether you make it yourself or you buy it from a store i saw that it's best to remove those after one year otherwise they start to get bitter fair enough but there ain't no liquor on my shelf lasted a year jason i know <laughs> <laughs> Paul, did you, because that was your bottle that we, we drank from when we last had umeshu, did you eat those ume? I tasted one, but no, I didn't. I didn't eat it. You didn't them. like it? I mean, I guess I, I didn't like it like by itself. I could have put it on some rice maybe or something. Mm. Well, you can eat those. People do. And it seems like kind of a waste to throw them out, right? I saw that if you don't want to just eat them straight, you can cook with them. You can make like jams or use them in desserts. 
Yeah. I bet if you like, they'll still have the pits in them, right? I think so. I mean, they must. Taking out the pits isn't part of the process, but I bet if you pulled out the pits and kind of like chopped it up and stuck it on some ice cream, that might be good, right? Yeah. Anyway, so once you take the ume out, you can still age the ume shoe after that and it'll continue to mature and the depth of flavor increases with each passing year. So it does sort of like age like wine, I guess. Okay. In a way. There are a bunch of other ways that ume is used in Japanese cuisine. Because of the acidity, it makes for really good jams, syrups, and sauces. Yeah, I saw that that ume syrup can be a good substitute if you want ume shu, but like without the alcohol. I mean, that's essentially what it is. It's just a bunch of sugar, you know, sugary syrup, just no alcohol in there. So... You can use it the same way to make drinks. You can mix it with carbonated water and make like a non-alcoholic ume soda. Or you can put it on shaved ice. Sounds kind of good. Yeah. So you can even make it into a cider. Okay. Ume cider. Okay. That might be good. I'd try it. There's numerous ume flavored candies. Definitely. There's something called karikari ume, which are like crunchy pickled ume that you find in a kid's candy shop sometimes. If you go to Japan, I highly recommend looking up a traditional candy shop. Like there's just so many interesting old-fashioned candies in Japan that you don't find anywhere else. That's just super fun to explore and pick some out and they're usually super cheap too. I saw the ume miso was a thing. Oh, I could see that working. Yeah. I mean, you talked about ume miso soup earlier. Right. I want to try ume wagashi, which is the red bean paste wrapped in mochi. They've got ume flavored versions of that for springtime. Okay. Yeah, that'd be like good. When we were just in Japan, I got some sakura flavored ones. I think the mochi was flavored with sakura, sakura and then it had mochi. the bean paste inside. So I think they do a similar thing with ume. I thought sakura mochi was just colored pink and shaped like sakura. I don't, I don't know if they actually flavor them with sakura. Hmm. The ones I ate, I don't think were shaped like sakura, and there was a little sakura leaf on it. So maybe that's where I was getting the flavor yeah. from. Or Did you, eat, you eat the leaf? I ate it. I, I don't know Paul's if you're of, supposed to. Paul has a thing about eating leaves, <laughs> whether or not they're supposed to be eaten. <laughs> you know, when you, when you can't read the label, you just got to go for it sometimes. Well, you know, I got to say, it adds a whole other dimension to your Japan vacation because Paul's just wandering around. Every time he sees a new leaf, it's like, I wonder what that one tastes like. <laughs> I found some amazing flavors that way. Yeah. We're hiking through the mountains, and he was just like a kid in a candy store. Like, oh, man, there's a new leaf. There's a new one. Oh, this plant has berries. Let me try some of those. <laughs> I'm just gambling on mushrooms, I find. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it's very popular, but I heard there's ume juice, which is made similar to how you make lemonade. Kind of like the sourness you get oh. from lemons. So like ume juice mixed with sugar and water as a cool summer drink. I mean, it sounds like basically ume syrup plus water. Yeah. Yeah, I could, I'm sure that's good. I saw ume can be used in rice crackers. That sounds interesting. Okay. Ice cream, ume ice cream. Sure. Yeah. Furikake again. I don't know if I've had like a ume furikake. That'd be interesting. I'll look for that. Got anything else, Paul? Are you all ume out? That's all I got on ume. 
Me too. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Let us know what you think. You can find links to our Discord and Patreon in the show notes again uh, or on our website, sightseeingjapanpodcast.com. Shout out to our Shogun-level patron, Nicholas McKibben. Thank you, Nicholas. You are the man. Nicholas gives a lot of support on our Twitter account. I appreciate it. Oh, nice. He's pretty active on the Discord as well. Yeah. If you're traveling to Japan soon, we have a affiliate link for the JR Pass. Got to get it before those prices go up in October. You find that on our website under the travel tools. Yeah, I hope everybody checked out our little announcement about the changes to the JR Pass. Kind of a bummer, but the exchange rate is still extremely favorable, so kind of balances out a little bit. Yeah. Paul, what's our next episode going to be about? We're going to be talking about Hiroshima. Okay. I like that city. I'm very much looking forward to that one. Yeah. You haven't been there, right? I have not, but you have, right? I'll tell you all about it. I had a great time there twice. Looking for that firsthand experience, Jason. Give it to us. I got a lot to say. Well, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.